When I started as a student at Mount Vernon Nazarene College a long, long time ago, we had a professor in a Bible course that every student had to take. Since it's a Nazarene and Christian school, those, I would hope those words are synonymous. Nazarenes would be Christians. But anyway, since it was a Christian school, every freshman had to take a course. I think it was called Christian Faith and Literature. And the teacher that I took that course with was Dr. John B. Nielsen. And uh, this is how things stick in your mind. He started every class three days a week with this song and then a prayer. And the song went like this. And if you know it, you can sing it along with me. The Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All you have to do is follow. The Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. Strength for today is mine always. And all I need for tomorrow the Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. I think about 12 people knew that song. Good. But Dr. Nielsen sang it like this. The Lord knows the way through the wilderness. He wasn't really a soloist. He was a minister and a professor, a good speaker, but not so much a good singer. But we all sang with him, and many times we tried to drown him out because he was, he was so bad. But uh, that stuck, sticks in my mind. And I imagine one of the reasons that he had us sing that song is not just because he taught the Bible class and one of the major events of the Bible is the children of Israel leaving Egypt in the Exodus and wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they reach the promised land. But every one of us experiences wilderness times in our lives. Now, the Israelites experienced it for 40 years. Jesus experienced it for 40 days, remember? Fasting in the wilderness. Some of us have experienced it for the last 14 and a half months. You could call that a wilderness experience. Sometimes a wilderness experience lasts 24 hours or less, or less. Sometimes it lasts for years as we go through a difficult spot, a time when God seems distant, a time when we don't seem to have the spiritual fervor that we once did, a time when our faith is challenged, a time when it feels like Satan himself is knocking on our door. And I really don't think any of us is quite that important that Satan himself has been knocking on your door. He sends demons to do that work. But there's only one Satan. But the Holy Spirit can be anywhere at any time, and he can be ministering to you and blocking the door for Satan's demons. He can be ministering to you and me and all of us at the same time. So we know that his power is greater because he can be with every one of us at every moment of every day. Praise the Lord. So when we walk through the wilderness, we need to remember, as one of the songs said today, there's another one with us holding back the seas, another one who walks between us or beside us, nothing between us. We have one who goes through the wilderness with us. So today I want to tell you an old, old story 
A story that is so old it will be new to some of you. A story so familiar to some of us that we often take it for granted. A story so big that it's easier just to see it as a series of smaller, more digestible stories. A story that convicts us. When we talk about conviction in the spiritual sense, we're not talking about being convicted of a crime or or being convicted and sentenced, we're talking about the Holy Spirit's work of showing us areas in our lives that need correction or improvement or change or an overhaul. The Holy Spirit convicts us of what's going on in our lives that is not pleasing to God. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us, we are to respond to that. And our response is either Yes, Lord, you're right. I need to make those changes. With your help, I will do that. Or we say, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, notice I didn't say, over here I said, yes, Lord, you're right. But over here I can't say, no, Lord. Those two words don't go in the same sentence. Because if he's Lord, you can't say no to him. You have to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to listen to your Holy Spirit's voice. I'm not going to make those changes. Forget it. I'll do things my way. And that's really the choice we have whenever the Holy Spirit convicts us of things in our lives. So there are things in this story today that will convict us. There are things that will teach us, motivate us, inspire us some things that will challenge us, some things that will make us feel guilty, some things that will bolster our faith. But all of this story points to an all-powerful, unchanging, and absolutely faithful God who is with us in every circumstance, whether we're going through the wilderness or living on the mountaintop. It's the story of Moses and the children of Israel and their wilderness experience. Let's look at a scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 1. What number book of the Bible is Deuteronomy? Five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Penta being the, the uh, pref- what do you call that? The, what is it? Prefix. I was going to say preface. The prefix, Penta, means five, right? Like the Pentagon. The Pentateuch are the five books of the law. Now, oral tradition says that we receive those through Moses. He probably didn't write them down and preserve them in some canister somewhere, but through the tradition of Moses passing it down and then the children of Israel passing it down, generation after generation, we have what today are the first five books of the Bible. Now, the Exodus happens in the book of? Exodus, yay! That's the second book of the Bible. Moses appears in the first chapter of Exodus. And so all through Exodus, we have the Exodus, and then we have the Numbers, and then we have the Levitical law. And finally, we get to Deuteronomy. So it sounds like these verses should be earlier in the story of the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. But it's actually near the end. And here's what we read. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, and most Bible scholars believe that Mount Horeb was the same as Mount Sinai. What happened on Mount Sinai? You can talk to me. Ten Commandments, yeah, Mount Sinai. And so the Lord said to us at Mount Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Now what does that mean? 
We all like the mountaintop experience. We all like those meetings with God. Moses encountered God. Moses was in his presence. Moses received the tablets of stone that God etched his commandments in. In fact, the first time Moses went up on that mountain and got the Ten Commandments, he came down to an awful scene because he had left his brother Aaron in control of things. And Aaron said, he's been so long on that mountain, I don't know if he's ever coming back. What shall I do? And the people and Aaron got together and made the golden calf. Remember that story? They donated their earrings and their rings and their gold and their bracelets and all that. And, and they made, they fashioned a golden calf and were worshiping and reveling and dancing and praising this golden calf as if he was the one who had brought them out of captivity in Egypt. And Moses coming down from this mountaintop experience with God is so angry with these people that he throws down the tablet of stone with the Ten Commandments and, and not only scolds the people, but God punishes many of them for what they did. So Moses has to go back up a little bit later and receive the same Ten Commandments, but the second tablets of stone. So God told Moses, take two tablets and call me in the morning, right? All right. So they have stayed at the base of the mountain way too long. Things are comfortable. We're encountering God here. And God says, you've stayed here way too long. Break, camp, and advance. Oh, don't forget those words. Break, camp, and advance. We're going to see more about that later. Then we leave out a couple phrases, and it says, See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Now, I told you it's an old, old story, and it's a big, long story. But when I was a kid, I learned it as a bunch of little stories, didn't you? Like one Sunday, we would learn about Father Abraham. And then we would learn about Father Abraham trying to help God along by having a baby in his old age with his wife's handmaiden. And then another Sunday, we would learn how God didn't like that. God gave Abraham and Sarah, their own son, even though she was 90 and he was 100. So Isaac comes along. And then another Sunday or a Bible school class or a Bible study or a sermon or somewhere along the way, I learned that Isaac grew up and he had sons, Jacob and Esau. And Esau was older, but Jacob was sneaky and he outwitted Esau and he got the birthright. And so the family line doesn't go through firstborn Esau, it goes through Jacob. See, that was a separate story too, wasn't it? And then I learned that Jacob had 12 sons by four different women. His favorite wife was Rachel, but she was the last one to give him any children. And so her firstborn was his favorite, Joseph. Remember that? And Joseph had 11 brothers, and 10 of them turned on Joseph and sold him into slavery. Now, part of it was his fault because he walked around in his fancy clothes, right, and said, Dad loves me more than you. In fact, I had some dreams where all of you all bowed down to me including mom and dad. Oh, they did not like Joseph. They sold him into slavery. So that was a separate story. And then I, I had another Sunday school lesson where they said, but Joseph was faithful to God, and he impressed Pharaoh's right-hand man, Potiphar, and Potiphar put him in charge of the whole house until Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph, and he refused her, and so she ratted on him, told lies, and he ended up in jail. Remember all that? 
Are you still with me on all these little stories? But it's all part of one big, 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 big story. Because God made a covenant with Father Abraham. He said, leave the land that you're familiar with and go to a land I will show you. What land is that, Lord? I'll show you. Well, how long does it take to get there? I'll show you. Well, what are we going to do when we get there? I'll show you. Not much to go on. But Abraham followed him. And Abraham received the inheritance of the land of Canaan. So how in the world did God's people end up in Egypt? Well, as life was going good in Canaan and Joseph had been sold into slavery, a famine hits. But before the famine, Joseph had Pharaoh's dreams tell him that there was going to be years of plenty. And so they, they storehoused all of the crops. Everybody had to give extra to the government. Hmm, that sounds familiar. And, uh, and they storehoused it all so they could ration it out during the famine. And they had so much... And they were the only ones in that whole Middle Eastern area. They had so much food that people from other countries and other areas came to buy food. So who comes to Egypt to buy food? Joseph's ten brothers, the very guys that sold him into slavery. And they don't recognize Joseph because he's second to, uh, to Pharaoh. He's probably grown a beard and he's got different clothes on. He speaks Egyptian or whatever they spoke back then and and so they don't recognize him but he recognizes them and eventually he reveals himself and things are so bad back in Canaan with the famine he says all 70 of you all move down here to Egypt and I'll take care of you remember all those stories every Sunday every Bible school lesson it was always a different little story but they're all part of one big story and so after so many years, like 200 years in Egypt, the Bible says a Pharaoh came into power that did not remember Joseph. And his attitude was, what are we going to do with all these people out here on the edge of town that have moved down from somewhere else and are taking up space? We're going to put them to work. And so this Pharaoh enslaved the people of God the descendants of Abraham. And they began to cry out to God to eliminate their oppressors or to deliver them from that oppression. Now, sometimes we get confused because the Bible refers to God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, as three different names. And you, you need to realize they're all the same. They're called Jews because that's their religion, Jewish. They're called Israelites because that was their nationality. And they're called Hebrews because that's the language they spoke. So when you're reading the Bible or hearing a sermon or a lesson, remember the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews, they're all the same. It's all the same group. Just three different names for the, the one group. Descendants of Abraham. And so the Israelites enslaved in Egypt cry out to God. And God calls a man who was a fugitive for murder with a speech impediment, tending sheep on the backside of the desert, not only running from his crimes, but running from God. And God speaks to him through a burning bush. And of course, Moses says, I can't do that. I don't speak too good. Now, I always have loved God's answer to that. Who made your mouth? <laughs> Isn't that good? It's, uh, well, Lord, I, 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 don't, I don't talk to talk too good so especially in front of people 
And God said, who made your mouth? If I'm calling you to use your mouth, don't you think I can fix that? Don't you think I can equip you? Don't you think that I'll speak through you if I'm calling you to do that? Oh, that's a good spiritual lesson for somebody today. What's God talking to you? I can't do that. I couldn't get it. No way. I'm not equipped. I'm not educated. I'm not prepared. God says, who made your brain? Who made your mouth? Who made your hands? Who made your body? Don't you think I can work through you if you'll just make yourself available? And so... God, hearing the cries of his people, sends Moses, and Moses negotiates back and forth with with Pharaoh, and another lesson, or ten lessons, were about the plagues, remember in preschool, because you got grossed out because it was frogs, and blood, and gnats, and locusts, and all kinds of boils on people, stuff like that, but through all of that, God kept his people safe until the final plague, the death angel, really bowled them over in Egypt. And Pharaoh said, get out of here, you may leave. And Moses led his people out of Egypt, out of captivity, into a wilderness experience that probably should have lasted three weeks or less. If you figure out a walking pace and the distance between Egypt and Canaan, the promised land, the land that God had given to Abraham generations before, if you figure it out, they could have probably walked it in three weeks or less. But it took them 40 years. Why in the world did it take so long? Now, there was a crowd of people, so that's one of the problems. Some estimates are as low as 70,000. Some estimates are as high as 2.5 million. How do you handle a group like that? Well, what's the largest crowd you've ever been in? You've been to Ohio, Ohio State University football game? 100,000 people. You were one of 100,000. Uh, back in the 90s, I went to the Million Man March on Washington, D.C. with Promise Keepers. We didn't quite make a million, but they think that there were between four and 500,000 people there. That's probably the largest group I've ever been in. But we were spread out over the mall there between the Capitol and and the Lincoln Memorial. So you can imagine how big of an encampment it would take for this huge family, the descendants of Abraham, the people of God, how much space they would take up. God provides miracle after miracle after miracle for his people while they're in this wilderness experience. The first obstacle after they leave is they come to the Red Sea. Can't go around it, can't go under it, can't go over it. So God makes a way for them to go through it on dry ground. Think of that. And then he uses the same waters that have been dammed up on each side to rush back in and kill the enemy who was in pursuit. Then there are the usual challenges of trying to survive in the desert. Anybody been on Survivor lately? No, didn't think so. Survival in the desert. Well, you need water. You need food, you need shelter, you need direction, and none of those things is available in the desert. No GPS, no signs that say Canaan, 270 miles. No, no convenience stores to stop at. In fact, someone said that's why the children of Israel wandered so long in the wilderness, because even back then, Moses wouldn't stop and ask for directions. 
Typical man, right? I know where I'm going. I'll get you there. Look at some of the ways God provided for their survival in the wilderness. One of the first ones is they come upon this body of water, probably a lake or a pond, even though it's in the wilderness. It's probably not very big, but there's water. And they're all excited until they get closer and they see dead animals lying around it. Remember in the old westerns where they said, don't drink that water. Look, all those dead animals tried to drink it. Well, they were alive when they tried to drink it. Now they're dead. So we're not drinking that. And God says, Moses, cut that tree down over there and throw it in the water. And when they did, the water was pure and sweet. And they filled up all their vessels, their canteens, their, their barrels, and got all they needed to drink, and that supplied them for a while. Another time when they needed water, God led them to an oasis that the Bible says had springs and palm trees. That sounds like a nice place to stop. It's probably some all-expense-paid resort these days. You can probably fly over there and, and visit it. What about the food? They needed food. Well, God gave them manna. We don't know exactly what manna was. We call it bread from heaven. It may have been some kind of confection. Uh, it, I think it's described as sweet, but it appeared every morning. And they were told, just get enough for today. And when they tried to get greedy and store some for tomorrow, they looked in the pot the next morning and it was full of worms and maggots and it stunk and it was rotten. But on the sixth day, the day before the Sabbath, they were allowed to get for two days so they didn't have to work on the Sabbath by gathering the manna. And so that morning on Sabbath, they looked in and it was ready to eat. God was teaching them, wasn't he? There's a spiritual lesson there. God was teaching them, you can depend on me. You may not have an abundance. You may not have any left over, but there'll be just enough for each situation, just enough for each day. Have you learned to depend on God like that? Oh, I know we have to prepare for retirement. We all need a savings account, emergency fund, and all that. But are we depending on God for just enough of his grace, just enough of his provision for each day. You know what the word manna means, don't you? What is it? That's the name they gave. They came out, they looked at this stuff and said, what is it? Okay, let's call it that. Did, how much what is it did you get today? Just enough for my family. I'm not hoarding. Manna, God's miracle food. God leads them every day with a cloud formation. He leads them every night with a huge flame of fi uh, fire in the sky. They live in tents and settle in, in, in a huge encampment for protection from the elements and from enemies. God provides water from a rock after Moses strikes it with a rod. When the people complain about their vegetarian diet, after all, we got some manna, God sends coveys of quail flying so low to the ground that the people just knock them out of the air and prepare them for dinner. Hey, Margaret, get my club. I'm going hunting. Bonk, bonk. It's kind of like whack-a-mole, right? Just knock those quail right out of the sky and fix them up for dinner. At a crucial moment, God calls Moses to the mountaintop and gives him the Ten Commandments, the law that will govern righteous living between man and God and between man and fellow man. There are instructions for a tabernacle, 
a place of worship, a portable temple that can be erected for a while and used for worship and then packed up and carried along on their travels. Along the way, there are enemies who try to defeat, kill, and conquer the Israelites. But time and time again, God wins the battle for his people. Once, this is my favorite one, once Moses is on the hillside overlooking the valley where a battle is going on between the Israelites and one of the enemy groups. Now, Moses was 80 years old when he started this deal. He died at 120. He committed the murder back in Egypt when he was 40. So you can divide Moses' life into three equal parts. His time as a a grandson of Pharaoh growing up in the, the palace, and then his 40 years of fugitive living, and then his 40 years of following God and leading God's people. So Moses wasn't down there in combat. He was on the hillside supervising, as us older folks like to do. We like to supervise while you young people do all the work, right? And the Bible says, as long as Moses kept his arms in the air, the Israelites were winning the battle. But when his arms grew weary and he had to drop them to kind of redo the blood supply, then the enemy started winning. And you know what happened? He got his brother Aaron and he got this guy named Hur, H-U-R, not Ben-Hur, I don't think, just Hur. And, and they held his arms up. It's probably rough on the old guy, but as long as they held his arms up, the Israelites won the battle and eventually succeeded. So God provided victory for his people. Now, all of this happened within the first two to three years of their travels. They left Egypt All of this stuff, the Ten Commandments, all these miracles I've described, all of God's provision, all this happened in the first two to three years of their journey. And at that point, God said, it's time to enter the promised land. We're right here. You need to go across the Jordan River into the promised land and take possession of it. The only problem is military maneuvers were required to win that land. There were other groups living there. And even though it was Abraham's inherited land from generations before, other tribes and other groups had come in to settle there. And God said, no, this is the land of my people, the land of your ancestors. I'm giving it back to you. You need to go in. But because battles would be required, Moses decided to send in 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Many of you remember that lesson on a Sunday or in a Bible school class of the 12 spies going in for 40 days and then they came back with their report. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, says, we can do it. God's on our side. God's told us to go. He'll equip us. He'll help us. He'll protect us. We need to go forward. And the other 10 said, boo, no, we're not going to do that. Those guys are big. There's more than us. They have many more than we have. In fact, things are so big over there, we saw these two big guys with a pole on their shoulders, one in the back and one in the front, and it took two of them to carry the cluster of grapes that was hanging from that pole. Everything grows big over there. Oh, it's a great place, land flowing with milk and honey, but there's no way we can overtake it. I vote no, let's don't do it. And of course, majority ruled And the people refused to go. 
So the people demonstrated a lack of faith and a lack of obedience and failed to move ahead. Because of this decision, the Israelites wandered throughout the desert area for another 37 to 38 years. Even during those wandering years that resulted from their disobedience, God still miraculously provided for his people. And the Bible says their clothes and shoes never wore out. They don't make them like they used to, do they? At the end of that time, another 37 to 38 years, God told Moses that Moses himself would not be allowed to enter the promised land. Moses had disobeyed God pretty significantly at one time. The first time water came from the rock, God told him to use the rod of God. Moses' shepherd staff that became the rod of God. God told him, strike the rock with your rod and water will gush out. And he did, and it did, and they all benefited from that water in the desert. But this time, Moses is agitated and frustrated and angry with the people because of their constant complaining. And God says, speak to the rock and water will gush out. And Moses, in a demonstration or, or, or some kind of egotistical fit, takes his rod anyway and strikes the rock when God had only told him to speak to the rock. I think God may have been saying, you're not the most important person here. You're trying to get the attention away from me. They need to depend on me, not you, Moses. Now, let me throw this in real quick in case we're too critical of Moses. Did you know that there were a couple times when Moses negotiated with God to save the lives of the people he was leading? God was so angry with them, at least on one occasion, he told Moses, these people have tested my patience to the limit. I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. Moses would have been like the second Abraham. We would have been saying Father Moses instead of Father Abraham had many sons. God would have wiped all those Israelites out and all the memory of the generations before, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and right on down, and start over with Moses. Well, anybody with a sense of ego would have said, sounds like a pretty good deal to me. I'll get first billing in this book right here. Father Moses. Moses actually, as he prayed to God, said, God, even if you have to blot me out of your book, please do not destroy these people. Now, you talk about servant leadership and sacrifice. He was, not, he was not only willing to put his own life on the line, he put his eternal destiny on the line. He said, God, even if you wipe me out of your book, even if I never see the promised land here or there, please don't wipe these people out. Please don't start all over. Please be faithful to them. Moses put himself as the go-between between God and those people and was willing to sacrifice his own life and eternal destiny for their salvation. No wonder we consider Moses and Joshua and some other Old Testament characters as precursors to Christ or prototypes of Christ. He was willing to be that sacrifice, sacrificial. When Moses went to the mountaintop 
God told him to go to the mountain so he could look over into the promised land. You're not going to get to go there, but I want you to see it. He could see behind all the places that they had been and how God had provided. And he could see ahead to God's promised land and all that he would fulfill in the lives of those who would go in. But keep in mind, anyone who was over the age of 20 when they left Exodus 40 years before was not allowed to go in. That's one of the reasons they wandered in the wilderness for so long. It gave an opportunity for those older folks to die off and a younger generation to come up. That generation had been disobedient when they said, no, we can't go in there. They're too big. There are too many. So only those under the age of 20 when they started at Egypt and exited out, only those were allowed to go in. And there have been many, many born along the travels. Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies, were the only ones over the age of 20 that were allowed to go in. So Moses went to the mountain, saw what the promised land looked like, and the Bible says at age 120, with his eyesight still clear, and with the strength of a youth, he died, and God buried him there on the mountain. Now, that sounds like the end of the story, but we have to go one step further. Joshua, Moses' successor, one of those two faithful spies, he leads the people of Israel into the promised land. But to get there, they have to cross the Jordan River at flood stage. The Bible says that there were priests leading the masses of people. The priests were carrying the sacred articles. They probably had some laborers that were carrying the the parts of the tabernacle that they could set up for worship, but the priests were in front. And as they approached the Jordan River at flood stage, those priests stepped out in faith, and as soon as their foot touched the water, God caused the waters to pile up upstream, and the waters failed to continue to flow. And they were able to walk across into the promised land. Oh, there's some spiritual application there too. When we step out on faith, the things that God can do for us. After they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, the first battle they faced was Joshaphat, the battle of Jericho, right? And God miraculously provided for the walls of Jericho to fall down without a single shot being fired. Well, they finally made it to the promised land and divided up the territory by the 12 tribes of Israel and God's people were back home. Great story, Pastor Mike, and lots of little great stories along the way. Thanks for this lesson and this reminder. Time to go. No, not yet. There's an application or two for all of us today. So let me ask you, Where are you in your spiritual experience? Are you living in the captivity of sin? Is your life bound by stuff and things and people dragging you down and keeping you from the freedom that God has for you? Have you followed him out of bondage like the children of Israel in Egypt? Have you followed him out of bondage and captivity into a relationship of joy, peace, love, and freedom? that he has for every one of us. It's not that difficult 
to step out of captivity into the newness of life. The Bible makes it pretty clear. All we have to do is say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm tired of living like this. I'm tired of being bound by the chains of my past. I'm tired of being a servant of the enemy. I want to live for you. Please, Lord, forgive me of my sins and live in my life and empower me to live a life that would be pleasing to you. And Jesus comes in and does that work for us. We don't have to stay slaves to sin. We don't have to stay in bondage. He can set us free. The second stage that some might be at today, are you a Christian living in this wilderness as we call life on earth? You're out of captivity. You're no longer in bondage back in Egypt, but you're wandering somewhere between the old life back there and the promised land up here. It's easy to find ourselves in a rut, in a comfort zone, on a spiritual plateau. Think of it like this. You profess to be a Christian on good terms with the Lord, and He's faithful to be there and meet your needs. Just like the children of Israel, God is providing your water, your food, your shelter, your direction, your guidance, your protection, and you have everything you need. Life is kind of comfortable. Uh, it may be the wilderness, but everything seems to be okay. I'm pretty comfortable here. Let's just stay here and live for a while. But the truth is, God has so much more for you. He has promised life in the Spirit, a deeper life, abundant life, overflowing life, fruitful life. Yes, the time has come to move forward into the promised blessings of God. The fullness of the Spirit in His sanctifying grace is available to every one of us. Power from on high to accomplish great things for God and for his kingdom. Don't camp on the edge of the desert just across the river from the beautiful promised land that God has for you. Don't settle for the comfortable life. Step out in faith, even though there may be floods to deal with, even though there may be enemies to deal with, distractions and obstacles. Step out in faith and see what miracles God wants to work for you and through you. Isn't it about time that you say goodbye to that habit that constantly defeats you? Isn't it about time to forget that hobby that has really become an obsession? Isn't it about time to put God first in every part of your life? Isn't it about time you decided to pray more intentionally for your kids and grandkids? Isn't it about time that you developed a deeper prayer life? Isn't it about time to try that small group or Sunday school class or Bible study that will help you grow in your faith. In fact, it might be time to actually start leading one of those groups. Isn't it about time you committed to being the spiritual head of your household and started that family prayer time on a regular basis? Isn't it about time to ask God to re-energize your marriage and recommit to cherishing your mate? Isn't it about time to tell the family that Jesus is our priority instead of sports, music and dance lessons, vacations, or anything else that gets in the way? Jesus is number one. Isn't it about time for you and your spouse to find a ministry that you can do together? Isn't it about time that you seriously shared your faith with a friend or coworker who knows 
what you stand for and knows that you're different, but you've never taken the time to tell them what you once were, how you found Christ, and how you're different now. It's time to share your faith. Isn't it about time to honor God in your free time, your finances, your career, and your relationships? Isn't it about time to sell out and go all in for Christ? I think it is. We've been in the wilderness too long. And sometimes we get way too comfortable. And God is saying, look at all this I've prepared for you over here in the promised land. Look at all the things that I can do beyond what I've already done for you. You can go deeper and farther with him. Now Moses passed the torch to Joshua. Apparently Joshua was a a natural leader. Even though he and Caleb couldn't talk the other ten spies into going their way and the people decided not to go in back there 38 years before, Joshua was a leader and he stayed faithful. And Moses knew that God had chosen Joshua to be the one to take the people of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land. And here's what Moses said to Joshua and the people before he died. See, I set before you today life and prosperity. And the Lord is saying that to some of us today about living in the wilderness and not going on to the promised land. He's saying, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, church, it's about time. Yes, Christian individual, it's about time. No more living in bondage. No more living in the wilderness. It's about time to step into the promised land that God has waiting for you. Pack up and advance. Let's bow our heads. At the end of this prayer, we'll be receiving the gifts of communion. So if you have your communion set ready... You can begin to prepare that. Lord, I believe you've spoken your truth to us today through this old, old story. A long and detailed story, but so many examples of your faithfulness, of your miracle working power, of your intervention in the lives of your people. And Lord, just in our short lifetimes, we can look back and see the times you've been faithful and how you've intervened and how you've provided And it's like the songwriter said, I have proven him true. What he says, he will do. 
We know you're our God who never fails. We know you're good all the time. But sometimes we get in a rut. We get in our comfort zone. And we're just kind of camping in the wilderness when there's so much more that you've provided for us and prepared for us. Help us, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit to pack up and advance. Help us to step out in faith and move toward the promised land and find the joy and the blessing that you have for us when we commit ourselves totally to you, when we let you fill us and empower us so that we can serve you in this present age. I know these people here today love you and are depending on you, and I pray that you can depend on all of us as we make ourselves available to be the people of God that you need us to be. It was Jesus who willingly laid down his life for us, who said, this bread represents my body broken for you. This wine represents my blood poured out for your salvation. We pray, Lord, that you'll bless these gifts of communion, consecrate them so that they become holy food and drink for us today. May they equip us to serve you better. We take the bread. Some of us break it, symbolizing his broken body. And we receive it in memory of him and give him thanks. Jesus said, this wine represents my blood poured out for your salvation. It's a new covenant. Sacrifices are no longer necessary. I am the sacrificial lamb given for your sins. My blood is poured out for your salvation. Drink this in remembrance of me. And we give him thanks. Pray with me the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.